0: Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers, and welcome back. Today I'm going to share an interview I had with Rebecca de Harlene. She has studied Spanish literature, worked as a hospital administrator, and taught English as a second language to adults from all over the world. The discovery of family papers prompted her to explore the repercussions of family secrets and of the ways we attempt to reveal ourselves. She lives in Oakland, California with her husband, Arthur, where they are fortunate to frequently spend time with their children and grandchildren. And I'm going to be talking to Rebecca about her book, The Lines Between Us, which was published last September, September of 2020. She tells me all about that book in the interview, and we talk more about the family papers that she discovered that kind of led to this idea. Um, so, without further ado, here is my conversation with Rebecca De Harling. Rebecca, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me, Allison. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, your first novel, "The Lines Between Us," released in September. Can you tell us about this book?
1: Um, yes, it's a dual timeline historical fiction. Um it's about a woman whose niece disappears um from 1661 Madrid and she looks for her for a while and then but having found her diary and realizing why the girl fled, she stops her search for fear she'll put her in greater danger. Um oh. and then in the second part in 19 we were in 1992 St. Louis, Missouri. Um, Rachel, uh, her mother has passed away and on her deathbed has said, uh, I have failed. I have failed Juliana. I'm like Anna. And Rachel has no idea who these people are. Anna being the aunt, Juliana being the young girl who had disappeared from Madrid. And when right. she's cleaning out her mother's home, she finds old papers and starts to unravel the mystery of who Anna and Juliana are and what they mean to her.
0: That's great. I I read the very the beginning of the book. It's you just have such beautiful lyrical um, prose. It's it's gorgeous. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's. Wh- I just wondered what led you to write this story. Where did you find your inspiration?
1: Um, well, I studied Spanish language and literature in in college, um, in graduate school, and I one day the story of Juliana came to me. Um, there is, as, as anyone who reads the first part of the novel will realize, um, I talk about the literature at the time. It's, um, sort of, it's Juliana's education is reading some plays. And at that time, uh, in Spain, honor was a very rigidly defined and demanding idea. And, uh-huh. um, some of the theater was about that. And so one of the things is that if a woman is somehow dishonored, perhaps through no fault of her own, she may need to be sacrificed in order to restore the man's honor. So I wanted to show what that would look like from the woman's perspective, in this case, Juliana, the girl who is 16, um, mm. and how might she react other than just... Oh, oh, no. <laughs> um, well, in fact, I even quote one play in which uh, a woman who has been violated says to her father, you know, uh, basically saying, kill me because that will restore your honor. And I just didn't want to present that kind of reaction. I wanted right. to present something a little different. <laughs> yes.
0: Your book talks about, because of, the. I guess it's the 1992 timeline, mm-hmm. that um, the family secrets kind of come up. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me more about that, or um, how that theme in the book came up for you?
1: I started the book, this is a sort of a strange um, tale of how the book itself, how I actually wrote the book, I started the book in the 1990s, um, mm-hmm. got discouraged, didn't know, you know, self-doubt, all that things that authors talk about, and sort of put it yes. aside, And um, taught uh, English as a second language to adults for 13 years. And then when I retired, I picked it up again. Um, Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, we had discovered, my sister and I, uh, after my folks had passed away, had discovered um, some surprising things in some papers. (laughs) And we, I, I wanted to explore in the book how family secrets function Um, even if they are from the best of intentions what does that do to the family and in in the book there are many many different levels of secrets there are there is what happened to Juliana's mother um, and the whole secret of her family background there is um, even Anna the aunt um, her husband has passed away and she finds his diary and and she finds out some things about him that she didn't know nothing Um, terrible, just that he had a desire to go to the new world and had never told her that. And then Mm. um, the modern character, Rachel, of course, is astounded by these papers that she has found that her mother never told her about. And in the end, she she finds out why the mother never told her, but it sort of led to... Um, a distant relationship between herself and her mother that she never knew exactly what, why that happened. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's functioning on a lot of different, a lot of different parts of the novel.
0: Right. So that's so interesting. So did you find, did you say you found the papers after you had started writing the novel, like later? Um,
1: Yes, I did. And so when I was first writing, it didn't, it didn't have quite as many um,
0: layers uh, secrets in it
1: layers. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, as, as the, as the novel wound up having, and it just sort of spurred me on to include that as a theme and to have people think about that um, in the context of their own lives, perhaps. Because right. we often tell ourselves that we're not sharing for the other person's good, but But is it always, is that always true? And not only what does it do to the person, um, who, who doesn't know the secret, um, they, and may later discover it after they can't ask about it anymore, but also what it does to the person who keeps the secret. In, in the novel, Rachel's mother is a very, has a very reticent personality. Um, and I like to imply that it's because she, lived her entire adult life feeling that she had to keep this secret that she had vowed to keep uh, when she was a young mm. woman.
0: So. Okay. So how much does your book mirror what happened in your life? Like, is Rachel's story similar to yours? or And how did you go about like separating that? If
1: yeah no it's it's it doesn't mirror it very much at all Um, yeah uh, it was just the inspiration it was just yeah it was just sort of a a trigger to like oh this is you know after you sort of step back and say oh wow that was shocking wonder why we nobody ever told us about this Um, and then you know after the emotional part is finished then you're able to sort of think of how that could um how, how other people might go through those We're always I mean there's always something in the news about people finding out some secret they didn't know about. And especially now with things like Ancestry.com and people, you know, sending in their, their samples. Right. Um, You know, I know people who have found a sibling that they a half sibling that they never knew existed. So yeah, it's, it's a very current thing. And it's something that happens in more cases, I think, than one would realize. But no, ours wasn't anything as as dramatic um, as what happens in the book.
0: (laughs) Okay. I'll keep that in mind when I finish reading it. Um, I think you mentioned that your novel has this theme of um, resilience, the the resilience of women. Can you explain how how your novel portrays that or how that has an importance to you?
1: Yes, um so as I said, I didn't want um Juliana to uh, just let herself be the victim when she she is she's violated and her father mm-hmm. is ha, kills kills the man and is going to kill her. Um and wow. so what does she do? And the, especially at that time we're talking 17th century Spain, a very closed society. Um right. pretty misogynistic. What mm-hmm. is she what are her options? She has really very few options, but she does run away. Um, and she has her her duena, who's sort of like a, a very close governess, um, who goes with her and helps her at first. Um, but and 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 they do they they make their way to southern Spain to Seville and But but her duena leaves her there, leaves her there. And Juliana must figure out what she's going to do. So think here we have this 16-year-old girl who has been traumatized. Um she has very little resources. She was able to bring her mother's jewels so that she has, you know, something some monetary backing. But she has to invent um all kinds of untrue scenarios about who she is and why she's in Seville and how is she going to get on a ship to go to um, the new world because she decides that she, she wants to leave Spain altogether. Um, so she's very inventive. And even though one might say, well, she just ran away, she, you know, and then she went into a convent. How is that? But at that time, there were very few options for her. And that is actually a very courageous option. Um, yeah, And then uh, through, and, and we don't see this until uh, much closer to the end when Rachel finds letters from some of the intervening ancestors, people sort of connecting her to Juliana. And um, each one talks about how they have been involved with the secret, how it's affected their lives. And then they also always bring something in that pertains to their time period and how they got through that. So, you know, for example, uh, world war one or the civil war, whatever thing was going on at that time, um, people leaving their homes or people whose uh, one character, her daughter is leaving her home because her husband, you know, in Mexico, her husband wants to go to Santa Fe and, and do get involved with the trading business there. So, um, and in all of the and, and they each leave, leave a letter, and that's how we know about them. And in all of them, they're um quite courageous and explaining how um, they had gotten through what they had gotten through and encouraging and sending love to the next the next gener the next generations.
0: Oh, it's so fascinating. Um do you want to talk about the form of the book? Because I know you used a lot of letters and diaries, uh, to make it up. So that's, it's like an epistolary novel in, in some yes, ways, yes. but also, um, but it's also a time slip, right? I mean, do you go yes. back and forth between
1: the yes. time periods? Y- yes, I do go back and forth. And I always say it's a dual timeline, but um, an author friend pointed out to me, well, actually you have three time you have three time periods, which oh. is true because the prologue, which is less than a page is 2014. And it's Rachel looking back on 1992 when she discovered the papers. And then the yes. epilogue um, at the end is also 2014 with Rachel telling us how everything has turned out in between and what has happened to her and her family and how she has shared the papers, etc. cetera. Um, okay. Yes, there is. So in, in the first part we have Anna and uh, she has found her husband's journal. And so she reads it. And then you and then you see her reaction to it and what happens in her day and then the next night she reads some more and and that continues on with her reflections on um, what her husband has said and also on uh, how he perceived things that happened in in their marriage um, perhaps mm-hmm. differently than she did so we get that connection um, it's not just a long Diary entry. It's short diary entries and then her reading. And then again, she finds, you know, um, when, when she, Juliana disappears, she goes to her house and finds Juliana's diary, which is the first part that we see of Juliana in which she's, um, a young woman. She's very excited that her, and she's been educated, which is quite unusual for the times. Mm-hmm. But her father, having no sons, um, decided he was going to educate his daughter and, uh, she's quite excited, and she's studying these dramas, which her father, these honor plays, which her father has assigned to her to read, although she never quite expresses the extreme importance of honor in the way that he would like her to. So we mm-hmm. see Anna reading that as she um, starts to d- decides maybe, you know, she feels like she has to do something to find Juliana. So she decides to go to Seville because sometimes her brother goes to Seville on business and maybe, maybe he took Juliana this time, though none of it seems terribly logical to her, but she needs to do something. So she's reading Juliana's diary as she goes along. Um, okay. and, and then when she's in Seville, she reads the ending and finds out, you know, why Juliana has left in the, in 1992, what Rachel finds is a second diary. In which Julia, in which Juliana is saying, "Here's what happened to me," and then and then it goes forward. So it's always a back and forth between okay. whatever the current time is, be that sixteen sixty or nineteen ninety two.
0: Hmm. Wow. So can you tell me how you did your research? Because I have I have very little knowledge about this time period, especially in Spain. Um, and like I didn't even know until you told me what the way they dealt with people being dishonored or women being dishonored or, or
1: violated. Um, Yes. Um, Well, as I said, I studied um, Spanish lit in grad school and, uh, you know, we read these honor plays. So I, I had that very basic level of knowledge. And of course, when you read literature, you also try to understand some of the history of the times, what, what were the cultural, Um, at that time. Um, so I had a very basic understanding, but, um, and and remember, I'm starting, (laughs) starting the book in the 1990s, so I didn't have the internet. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, you know, people have always been writing books without the internet, but it it was a very different process than what it is from what I'm doing now on my second book. But I came across a, a wonderful book, um, called something like The Daily Life. Uh, of Spanish in Spanish golden uh, the Spanish golden age because that's what that time period is called the Spanish golden age um, in Spain mm-hmm. they consider it their golden age for art and literature um, so that was very helpful to me and just kind of the day-to-day things like oh not everybody had glass in the windows but some rich people did and that was a status symbol or you know what were some of the things people wore that that helped a lot because of course that is not in literature. <laughs> right. Of so, um, and then other, you know, a lot of other things I read, uh, uh, you know, things about convents in Mexico at that time. And uh, there is one um, real character, a, a, a historical person in the novel. And that is a woman called um, Juana Inés de la Cruz, who was at that time in Mexico And she was in a convent um, and she was extremely well educated. Uh, And when she was young, in fact, disguised herself as a boy so that she could could attend, you know, uh, lessons. And so I also knew something about her and that helped make it credible that there could be people in the convent, women in the convent at that time who had some knowledge. Right. So, um, that again was literature because she wrote poetry and as well as like very complex philosophical essays. Wow. Um, and so that helped. And then other things, just kind of what everyone does, you know, looking for books, looking for uh, materials from the era. And the odd thing about starting my research then and then picking it up again in, you know, 2013 or so was that, you know, you sort of feel like, I have to double check everything. now, right. <laughs> Especially now that the internet is here, you know, so I I, I, I spent it's some time
0: for to find out if you're right or not. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I spent some time doing that. I mean, not that you, you know, everything on the internet is 100% reliable, no. but you know, but the internet was wonderful um, for very obscure things. So I could look up, well, what was the route that someone might take from you know, Mexico City to Santa Fe at that time. And in mm-hmm. fact, it's still mentioned in like parks in that area. So you uh-huh. could kind of read the history on park websites or I, I wanted to be very authentic about names. And so on the internet, you can find lists of what were Spanish, uh, surnames and, and first names in that time period in Spain. Or, right. um, at one point, Rachel goes to Santa Fe to try to, to find a branch of the family that she has reason to believe, uh, might be in that area. Well, w- without traveling to Santa Fe myself, and, and at this point, it's not 1992 anymore. Um, <laughs> what might have been available? Well, the internet says, well, there were, there are baptismal records going back that far. So, um, um that, you know, it's sort of jigsaw. Puzzle um some yes. people I know do all, all, all their research and then they write, and I c- can't do it that way because for part part of the reason is I don't think I would remember everything yes yeah, and, you know, I
0: can't do it that way either
1: yeah, sometimes something comes up and then I think, oh, I need to explore this more so um kind of right. piecemeal but <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, so i I know you you studied Spanish. Um, literature, and then you taught English as as a second language. So I'm assuming that you're very familiar with the Spanish language. Do you have um, Spanish heritage or background or is that? No,
1: no, I just... um, when I, in, when I started high school and you had to take a language, I took Spanish because everybody said that's the easiest. So this was in St. Louis. In California, it would be a very obvious choice, I think, to take Spanish, right. which is where I live now. But, um, yeah. this was St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, but I took Spanish and I discovered that I loved languages. And later I studied some German and, you know, a tiny bit of Italian and Russian. And, um, so yes, I, uh, Although, you know, since I don't use my Spanish very much anymore, it's definitely not not on the level it used to be. And actually, in teaching English as a second language, um, I had to teach in English because I might have students from 10 different first languages. Okay. So okay. that... Um, a, Once in a great, well, I would say there's never more than, even though, as I said, I'm in California, there was never more than 20 or 25% of my students who were Spanish speakers. Although occasionally, if there was some, for example, piece of grammar that I knew is exactly like it is in Spanish, I would say that to the Spanish speakers. Look, this is just like this, you know? Yes, But yeah, for the most part, um, and, and you know, I love teaching English as a second language because... Um, I loved language. I, I you know, I'm a grammar, you know person. and and the students were just so amazing. I absolutely oh. loved it. It was a wonderful job. I retired so that I could babysit my newborn um baby granddaughter. so oh, <laughs> otherwise, I nice. probably would have stayed a few more years.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's very rewarding, yes, but you, I mean, it's clear in your writing that you have a command of this Spanish language also. And um, like your prose is just, captivating. I was, I'm just amazed that you didn't start writing books earlier. So I'm just curious if you can tell us, I know after you retired and I think you said 2013, you retired and, and decided to work on this book more. Yes. Um, so where, what happened then once you finished the book, tell us the story of how you, how, how you got a publishing deal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'll sort of start with the end and then backtrack maybe because my publisher is She Writes Press, which is a hybrid press um, for your listeners who don't know what that is. It's a publisher, an independent publisher, but the author pays the costs of publishing. So what happened was um, our publisher, the woman who heads it up, her name is Brooke Warner. And I had, I had met her because I went to, um, a, a webinar, a seminar that she um, was giving. And then I met with her to ask her about platform building <laughs> because that was also part of the big thing. She And she said, well, yeah. even though we're not going to talk about your book, bring your first 10 pages so I know kind of what you write about. So mm-hmm. I did, and she liked it. And I sort of got a relationship going with her. But I said, well, I, I would still like to try to go the traditional publishing route. So I queried for a year and I, I will not tell you how many agents I queried and I tried to be very focused and, but, um, and you know, there were people who asked for partial manuscript or full manuscript, but, but nothing came of it. And I just thought at my point in life, I don't want to wait around anymore yeah. So um, I applied to to She Writes, and uh, they accepted my book for publication because they also, even though the authors pay, they don't accept all comers. <laughs> you know, it's still right. it's still curated. So, and and it's been a wonderful experience. I've been very very happy with it.
0: Good. Um, then I see that you also were you a finalist for several awards? Is that, can you tell us yes. about that?
1: Um, yes. Um, I, I was a finalist in the international book awards, uh, for best new fiction and also in the, um, best book awards for, for again, um, best new fiction. I was a finalist in those. Right. And, um, yeah, that was a very, uh, pleasant surprise. Yes. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> exciting. <laughs>
0: That doesn't happen every day to every new author. Right.
1: Well, with every, all the books that come out, it's just the struggle, of course, as you know, to have people know that you exist. So (laughs) anything else. (laughs) Right.
0: Uh, So what are you writing now? You mentioned a second book. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yes. Uh huh. So I decided that, and again, here is how, once you start your research, it might change things, but I decided that I wanted to have um, the character be a woman who did something unusual. And I decided I wanted to stay in the 17th century because um, I think it's especially true of 17th century Spain that at least people in this country know very little about what was going on. I mean, everybody knows the Inquisition. um, Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I think people, it's just not something that we put a lot of focus on. So I thought, well, I'm going to stay with the same time period. And I would like to have this woman who's a cartographer. And mm. when I thought of that, I thought, well, of course, Spain would have been very big in map making at that point because of, you know, the New World and all of that. But as it turns mm. out, the place that was really the center, the European center of map making at that time was Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the um, Dutch East India uh, Indies Company and the Dutch West Indies Company, so uh, I had to uh, switch my switch my venue uh, because I still wanted to stay with this idea. And it, it, as it turns out, in 1665, this book called the Atlas Maior came out, and it was the largest book published in the 17th century, not just in Amsterdam, anywhere. So it's filled with antique maps and you can get an amazing reproduction of this book for quite reasonable price. So I I, I ordered that. And um, so, so it's going to be around that story. And, and again, as I say, you know, you find out more research and um, it, it turns out that that publishing company mostly just, Bought maps from other people. They didn't, you know, they didn't necessarily um, have in-house cartographers. So it's going to change the story a little bit. Um, and right now I'm at the point where I I think for me, writing historical fiction, you do the research. And as I find out different things about the society and what was going on, I think, Oh, that would be something interesting to have happen. Or, Oh, let's have a character do this. Um, Right. So. So it's it's, it's very amorphous right now, as you can tell. But it will be 1660s Amsterdam with a young woman who is involved with map making in some way.
0: Oh, cool. This, but the lines between us, it seems like an excellent pick for a book club. And you mentioned to me that you wanted to, um, you would love to meet with book clubs via Zoom. Can you tell my listeners how they could
1: um, get in touch with you to do that? Yes, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Um, so they can go to my website. It's RebeccaDeHarling.com. Um, DeHarling. So it's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-D-H-A-R-L-I-N-G-U-E. And there's a page on there that says four book clubs. So I have discussion questions and also, um, on the, con- you can go to the contact page and I would be happy to meet with your book club all over Zoom, and I can set it up because I have I have that capability. I've set up other Zoom meetings, and I would say that um, let me just get in there that I have been a member of a book club since 1984, so I have a good idea of how book clubs function, and so I do. I, I wow. Yes, I was. You know, young mother and needed some intellectual stimulation (laughs) and joined. Yeah, that's when
0: I started going to book clubs too. Yes. Yeah. Not in 1984, but now. Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, I was in AAUW, American Association of University Women, and our branch here in Oakland had uh, a book club. So I've belonged to that since 1984. And a lot of the people in it at that time are still in it. So um, I, I know how book clubs work. I think the book would. Could provide a lot of discussion, and let yes. me just say while I'm talking about book clubs, is um, one really there were some really valuable things that I think I've gotten from belonging to a book club. Mm-hmm. One is, especially through a kind of book club that's like AEW, it's pretty pretty high level, and people uh, we're very organized. We plan our 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 calendar a year ahead of time. Wow. We have a person designated who will give the review. You know, we vote on who, what we'll read. We have a person designated who gives the review, who talks about the author and the criticism, and then we discuss. So it was a venue for me um, because I really missed th- discussing literature as I had done in graduate school. And it was a venue for me to do that with women who were interested in that. And right. so it, it helped me in that way of really having all of these years of analyzing books, which, you know, the, to me, the best way to learn how to write is to read thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, another thing that helped me was really understanding that not everyone likes the same books. And that's okay. And that has really helped me because I know that there are going to be people who don't be people who don't like my book. And that's all right. I always remind myself of, oh, remember the time I reviewed that Pulitzer Prize winning book? And some people in the group hated it. So not that my (laughs) book is on that level, but nevertheless, it it was, uh, you know, it, it was a good Thing to keep in mind as I was getting rejections from from agents,
0: <laughs> right? Oh yeah, that's true. So, um, you've listened to my podcast, so you know what question I'm going to ask you next because I ask it of all my guests. Um, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present?
1: I think that especially for those who have been left out of the history books, um, like women, and certainly. Um, People of color, that it's a way to reimagine what things might have been like because we don't, the history of people who are not in the dominant group Mm -hmm. wasn't really recorded. And so through imagining, we can sort of give them a new life and a way to imagine what might have happened and. And to give us inspiration. And I, I, I didn't know, as you said, that uh, you were going to ask this question. And so I went and looked up one of my very favorite quotes. Um, and it's from an author named Rachel Kaddish, who wrote a book called a Historical Fiction, also set in the, in the 17th century, um, uh-huh. called The Weight of Ink. And she said in an article that she did in 2018 in a Paris Review, we've lost too many stories. Historical fiction undertaken with integrity is an act of repair. Lives have run through the sieve, but we can catch them in our hand. And I just love that yeah. idea of bringing stories alive. And, and And as she says, with integrity and her If you read her book, The Weight of Ink, it's incredibly well researched. And she says Mm -hmm. in this article that if you make all of the other details in your book, things that are known, things that are in the history books, and you've done everything you can to show this is what it was like, then an imagining will fit in and be credible. So Mm -hmm. I, I really like her way of looking at things. And I think that for groups that were missing from the history books, it helps us live now because we see that there possibly were inspiring people or people who just had troubles like we have and somehow got through. And I think that Mm -hmm. is the big, you know, like now they say, so many people are reading about the 1918 pandemic because it's, it's comforting to know that people have, been through trials and tribulations and somehow made it to the other side. So I right. think that's what historical fiction can do for us. Yeah. Yes.
0: I love that. Um, the idea of capturing those yes yeah. stories that we've mm-hmm. missed out on. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. So Rebecca, it was wonderful talking with you. Thank you. What, what's the best way for listeners to find your
1: book? Um, it's sold anywhere books are sold. So Great. yeah, you can go to your favorite bookstore or online or, and and can I please make one plea? Um, if yes. you read the book, no matter where you got it, if you got it at the library, it's in a number of libraries, you can always request it if your library doesn't have it. Please leave a review for the author. Because yes. it makes a huge
0: difference. It does. <laughs> It, that's an excellent point. It does. It makes a huge difference to the author if you leave a review.
1: Yes. And it doesn't have to be long or complicated. It can just be a sentence right. or two, but it's very exactly. helpful. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. And do you, are you active on social media? What's the best? Yes. Um, yes. Um,
1: I'm at Rebecca De Harling Author on Facebook and Instagram.
0: Okay, great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today, Thank Rebecca. Thank
1: you, Allison. It's been a pleasure.
0: Okay, my friends, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rebecca DeHarlene. If you've been enjoying Historical Fiction Unpacked, I would love it if you would leave a review. There are a few new reviews on Apple Podcasts for the show, and I'm so thankful for that. I was excited to see that. Um, thank you so much to you, those of you who've left reviews. Please, if you haven't yet, just go and leave a five-star review. It will help other people find the podcast if they're interested in historical fiction. And then they will be able to find all these great authors to read, and it will help the authors as well as myself, as well as the readers who want to find these books. So leave a review. Also, go to the show notes. they are in, if you use Apple Podcasts to listen, they are right in that app. They may be in other apps, but I have not checked that out completely. Some some podcatchers do have show notes and some do not. But you can always find them at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. In the show notes of every episode, I have links to the author's books and to their website and their social media. So it's easy to follow them and find their books. I also want to ask you to join our Facebook group. It's called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. Just look that up on Facebook. And there's also a link for that in the show notes so you can get to it from there. But we would love to have you join the conversation. Before I let you go, I want to come back to this idea of honor that came up in the conversation with Rebecca. Um, obviously the people in 1601 Spain had, or the men at least had some kind of warped idea of honor and what that meant, but honor overall is something to be strived for. Um, and I think that they just had the wrong idea about what, what robbed you of honor. So I just want to close with a quote about honor. The author Samuel Smiles said, the battle of life is, in most cases, fought uphill, and to win it without a struggle, were perhaps to win it without honor. If there were no difficulties, there would be no success. If there were nothing to struggle for, there would be nothing to be achieved. So let me leave you with that, my friends. Keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.